Thanks so much for coming on, James. Um, how is it over there today? Um, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> the yeah, the UK government's response to all this has certainly been suboptimal. Um, but I think that people are increasingly acknowledging that this is going to be with us for quite some time and reacting accordingly, um, despite the many uh, uncoctured horror stories about parks being flooded with people not socially distancing and such. Um, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, in Puerto Rico, uh, well, we have some tourists who are here not wearing face coverings. Uh, it's pretty cheap to get here right now and pretty cheap to stay. So people are taking that mm. opportunity to visit for some reason, um, even though there's nowhere to go and nothing to do. Uh, they just stand in the street. I guess, I guess sometimes it's fun to have a different setting for your isolation, but it would be nice if they wore their masks. Um, and and people are, are I, I've been trying to figure out a way to say this um, and get an answer from a scientist, but the people, the information that has been shared that it, it's okay to ride your bike or to run without a mask basically makes it so that no one wears one because everyone acts as though they're yeah. out exercising and they're not necessarily. And also if everyone is out exercising and not wearing a mask, then it kind of defeats the whole purpose of, of trying to keep this under control. Um, but we've been in, in very like severe lockdown with a curfew for over two months now. And um, with, but without a lot of good information or tracing, which is, the issue mm. in the in the entirety of the United States. So it's yeah. been a journey as it has been for everyone. Um, and yeah. luckily, you know, on, on the good side of it, uh, uh, not sick. No one I know is sick. So um, for now, I'm, you know, a, one of the lucky ones in the situation. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yeah, um, so I grew up in a small town in the UK called Cheltenham, which I'm certain no one listening to this podcast will have heard of before. Um, it's famous for two main things, which are a horse racing festival, which has been this year, uh, not the Cheltenham one, but was one of the main reasons that the UK has possibly suffered such a uh, bad coronavirus crisis is that they didn't cancel a leading horse racing festival, which had many tens of thousands of people attending, um, just as things were starting to become clearly bad. Uh, and the other thing it's famous for is that it's a spa town. So in the sort of Edwardian Georgian 1800 times, um, people who are wealthy enough to do so would come to take the waters in the belief that it would cure them of all ailments and also make them virtuous and excellent, which is probably a very strange precursor to the wellness industry. Um, <laughs> and I, I mean, my, neither of my parents are particularly invested in cooking. Um, they, they both obviously cook 
meals for me and my sister and I think did a very good job of that but I I wouldn't credit my like interest in food to them so to speak um I was always given the task of doing the magic stir at dinner which was a single stir that would make whatever was being cooked perfect <laughs> uh, and so how Go on. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Um, well, how did you end up getting into food then? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I read a lot of cookbooks when I was quite young. Um, I think the first one I got given was a book by Nigel Slater, who is a UK food writer who I admire a lot, um, called Real Food, which was divided into chapters based on individual foodstuffs. So I think the main ones were garlic, cheese, chocolate, potatoes, sausages, and I think chicken, uh, all of which are quite appealing categories to someone who's 10 and is interested in cooking. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think it mostly started when I finished university and I moved to London and was working in theatre and needed to get a job to pay the bills because I was doing an unpaid uh, thing assessing scripts for a new writing theatre um, and that got me interested in coffee and coffee culture and I think the food thing kind of spiralled from there. Um, and you mentioned Nigel Slater, um, he's one of the United, the British food writers who have kind of crossed over into the American consciousness somewhat mm-hmm. um, but for the most part there's there's not a lot of dialogue back and forth between the the UK and the US on on matters of food. It seems um, yeah. it seems that that's changing now with uh, some folks such as yourself who are involved with Eater London who are a bit more engaged with um, folks in the US on social media and such. Why why do you think that is? Why do you think that that food writing that originates in the United Kingdom is is so different from the food writing that comes out of the States? Um, that's a really good question and one that I try and reconcile on a regular basis. Um, I think I think that one of the key reasons is that Eater despite being in the US since 2005, only launched in London in 2017. Uh, And I think that's a pretty good kind of precursor to understanding why the food media in the two countries is so different. Um, In the UK, aside from publications which are very much focused on London rather than being focused um, on nominally at least an entire country so uh in america places like uh eater sever um gourmet when it was still around um publications that may have seen themselves in that vein were all focused entirely on london um and obviously Eater london is the same so food writing has mostly been the preserve of national newspapers and food writing in national newspapers is largely confined to two strands both of which fall under lifestyle and those are restaurant criticism and recipe writing so 
I think that's the key difference is that I think if you asked the someone in the street in the UK what they thought food writing was, they'd probably default to it being either reviewing restaurants or cookbooks, which, both of which are interesting mediums in their own right, but certainly aren't representative of all the things that food writing can be. And that is very keenly demonstrated, I think, in the range of material you can find in the US. And that's not so true in the UK. It's starting to be true. It's certainly um, opening out, which I think is very welcome. And I'm glad that Eater seems to be in some small way a part of that. But I mean, the, the five leading restaurant critics in the UK have a combined tenure of about 125 years. So, uh, yeah, I know, right? Um, so the uh, arena in which you're working as, in my personal case, and I don't want to speak for myself as a newish food writer, but also for Eater London as a newish publication, is very entrenched in a certain way of thinking about restaurant writing and food writing and what those things are for and the forms they should take and who they should serve. And I think there's not the uh, plurality of form that there at least appears to be in the US. And I hope that changes in the next you know, five to ten years, because it would be very disappointing and boring if it didn't. Right. And so how has Eater London and and the people in this kind of newer wave of food writing, what, what steps have you all taken to create that sort of plurality? And what is the reaction bit to that? So, um, well, the reaction has mostly been this perception that I think because Eater London is a new site and because I think barring the very early days when we had a couple of current restaurant critics write guest pieces for the site, everyone who had written for us is not tied to a newspaper, which is, like I said, the prominent sort of food writing in the UK. So the reaction has been that it's this sort of, um, you know, uh, new wave of generational upstarts coming in to steal away everything that we hold dear. Um, and that's untrue for a number of reasons. And the main one is that there are people in the UK who have been doing that similar kind of writing and were doing that similar kind of writing long before Eater London existed and long before I was even out of school, let alone doing food writing. Um, but those publications either closed or changed their angle or the people doing it were never able to break into the very rarefied and closed off kind of newspaper circle of writing. Uh, and so the reaction has been one of factionalism. Um, mm -hmm. Like, for example, one of the steps we've taken would be Jonathan Nunn's um, Best Valley Restaurant project, which was twofold in that it was designed to work against the sort of entrenched idea of the cheap eat, which I think is, you know, baked into both American and UK food writing culture and is something that needs redressing. 
uh, and was also designed to counter the fact that restaurants reviewed in newspapers in the UK are largely, they're almost all in London, they're largely at a certain quite expensive price point, and they're largely run by white male chefs. Um, and a lot of the response to it has been this sort of, like, why are you doing this? Uh, this isn't the way that food writing is in the UK. Uh, this isn't what food writing is supposed to be. Uh, and I think it's been strange to experience that because the perception seems to be that we're trying to kind of like stage a coup of some kind <laughs> and we're not. Like, we just want to like exist as an alternative alongside what already exists. Um, but that's not how we've been met in some quarters of the UK food writing um, circle, I suppose. Right, right, right. I mean, the you also UK food writing also kind of hit the States recently when there was that, I guess it's always when there's a bit of a kerfuffle, like when, when this mm. one editor, mm -hmm. you know, wrote back to a vegan pitch saying something like yeah. vegans should die um and then yeah. he he came out with a book that by all accounts is not very good and was reviewed in grub street and kind of just destroyed um yeah. I, his name is is failing me right now but it it yeah, really yeah. is right right and so it's it's very interesting to watch from the outside because like that perspective is kind of I mean, it's it's sort of like a jokey outsider perspective of what a British person is from it, from the U.S. Like, so of course we like to make fun of him and pay attention to him because for us it's it's a caricature, and but mm. it it does do a disservice it seems to to how people perceive food in the U.K. because if we're only going to talk about these very like upper class type writers who never want to see any change, um, then mm. we continue to kind of view food in the UK as a very stuffy affair. And from all accounts, mm. it, it is not necessarily that. Um, so mm. how, how does that, that play out um, in terms of what you decide to cover at Eater London? Do you take more risks because you want to push back against this very state idea? Or or is someone like that kind of a joke even to you guys? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think... I mean, I think there is that element of stuffiness still. I think it's probably even in... The book by the critic you're talking about, William Sitwell, I think it's overstated in terms of its actual impact on the way that right. restaurants in the UK kind of operate and think about food. Um, it does definitely still exist, like uh, probably the most prominent food TV programme in the UK is probably MasterChef, and that definitely still exists in this kind of like space where the all the pinnacle of food is like Eurocentric white tablecloth-y, all the vegetables are in little cubes kind of mm -hmm. dining. Um, and I think that does have an impact on 
other restaurants in the country, but I think, and this is a hypothetical, but I think it's mostly true. I think that has more of an impact in restaurants outside London, particularly mm-hmm. those recognised by the Michelin Guide, and particularly those recognised uh, in places that aren't cities. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of London, I mean. The thing is, is that I think that we don't see the places that we cover as taking a risk. Like, I think one of the most dangerous things that food critics can do, and I think that it happens a lot in UK food writing in particular, is to, like, write for this imaginary audience that you kind of patronise by assuming that they won't be into or won't understand uh the risk that you're taking and therefore you just never take the risk um Mm -hmm. and i think that's been proven by the fact that lots of people read our site and lots of people want to read about the restaurants that we cover that we don't perceive as risky at all but i think other critics in the uk certainly do or they want to like handle it with with kind of with kid gloves and mm-hmm. talk about it and the sort of like oh isn't this a nice restaurant project run by old someone who doesn't look like me and then we'll leave it alone and then go back to the same old thing um mm-hmm. which is probably where the stayed perception comes from um but i think right. a second strand to it is that because the london restaurant scene if you were to put restaurant scene in like air quotes <laughs> is quite a newish invention. Um, I think it's still, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, I mean this in a de- de- developmental way, I think it's still relatively immature. Mm-hmm. And I think that it has this air of like, this is a group of people at a party and they love all the food and they love all the drink and they love all the guests and they love the host. And then someone turns up and they say, oh, the food's great and the drink's great and you're all quite nice people, but maybe the host is actually not such a good person. And even though the thing being criticised is like the superstructure, the guests feel criticised for being there. And I think that's kind of part of the problem is that when we try to address larger issues, they're often taken as personal attacks, like raining on someone's parade or stopping people from having fun in restaurants. It's like, that's not the purpose of this. The purpose isn't to like drag individuals or say that people are making bad individual choices necessarily. It's just to ask like, you know, sure, this is the way things are, but why are they the way they are? And, who are they actually good for? And I think that's a pretty good summation of how we try and guide what we're covering. Right, right, right. And you are doing so much reading uh, for your new newsletter, Indigestion. Um, how do you, how does that happen? Like, how do you how do you put that together? Where What are you following? And how are you making sure, you know, to read outside um, the sort of, you know, well, well-trodden, well-tweeted, I should say, um, 
types of voices and publications that are that are you know used to attention. I mean, I know you you've linked to Granta a couple of times, which is more well known as a literary journal. Um, so, um, can you give us I, some of your methodology? I think that I so I started doing it as a project for another publication, The Gannet, which was the first uh, food writing thing that I did. It was a free um, kind of passion project that mostly interviewed chefs, restaurateurs and food writers, but we wanted to kind of collate an interesting range of perspectives on what food writing was doing and what all the different ways in which food writing and I think more broadly food media, because I try and look at podcasts and videos and photographs and zines and all other formats where I possibly can. Uh, and I mean, in terms of indigestion, I'm sort of relying on a very large network of publications and new publications that I built while doing that. But I mean, a lot of it honestly is using Google. Um, a lot of it is following up on links and like stories that those kind of stories you're talking about that maybe do get shared a lot because quite often the branches of a story that get informed by links to other publications can unearth more interesting things that probably could have been given airtime of their own and have been just in publications or places that maybe don't necessarily get as much airtime as a sort of what you might call the usual suspects um mm -hmm. and i don't know i think just looking around i mean it, it does it takes time but you know, it can be done. Um, and yeah, I think it's hard to remember. I just read a lot and try <laughs> to not look at the yeah mainstream publications as the as the starting point, I guess. Right, right, right. And so are you looking when you are creating your weekly anthology for food writing that is making up for what you see as missing in the mainstream or for conversations that are lacking in the mainstream? And if I mean, but even if that's not your aim, it, that is what you end up doing. Um, and so what what do you think is lacking in, in mainstream food conversations not necessarily just in the uk but in this kind of global conversation that we all are having all day uh, i think the the key thing that's lacking is a recognition of the fact that restaurants and food don't just appear i think that it comes from this the thing that spurred it for me in the uk was definitely that there wasn't enough writing that even considered why food cost the amount it did or why ingredients came from certain places or when i was working in the coffee industry like why the term speciality coffee even came to be and what what does it mean and what can it um be translated as 
Mm-hmm. I think I think that's the main thing. I think that there's a lot of assumption baked into a lot of food writing about. Yeah, I mean we've talked about this. I think your your line in your newsletter about the coffee always comes from somewhere is kind of the thing I think is missing. Like an awareness that the single thing that you're writing about, be it a dish in a restaurant or a whole restaurant or a chef who is at the head of a kitchen or a restaurateur who's at the head of a large restaurant organization or even a small one is part of a chain that doesn't start or stop with them. Mm -hmm. And I think the most interesting, like vital food writing addresses that and treats food as something which intersects with being like essential to life and something that can be treated as a luxury or a pleasure and I think often particularly in the UK like those two things don't really meet Mm -hmm. Uh, and you just have this sort of very glossy lovely impression of a restaurant world and like a restaurant culture which is full of wonderful people and does wonderful things and has so many wonderful aspects to it but also you can't just stop at the surface you know you can't just take all of that at face value and say there's nothing behind this like there is and you need to (laughs) ask what that is and ask whether it's actually good or not it does make reporting much harder to ask those questions, um, but no, it's so necessary. Um, so I, you reminded me by tweeting the other day about some sort of bug f- food, food made from bugs, uh, worms, I think. Um, but the how this is a kind of sort of um, utilitarian perspective on food that has been driving me nuts for a while, um, where you know, the things that you're saying about sourcing and and that the food is always has a longer lifespan than one can imagine from when it appears on your plate. Um, But there's been this strain of of not caring about that for the sake of efficiency and for the sake of greenwashing um, items to make them seem as though they are saviors um, of the planet and saviors from climate change when you know, there's a lot of questions that could be asked about their sourcing and that sort of thing. And I'm talking, yes, about made like heavily marketed products made from insects where people aren't considering how insects can also be monocropped and thus susceptible to disease, but also things like the Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat. Um, and how how are those things manifesting in the UK and how, you know, uh, are people talking about these things? Are they writing about them? You know, what is the what is the temperature on these things right now? I know that it's kind of taking a back burner to the fact that we are living in a global pandemic, but um, these things still exist, and and I'm still I'm still wondering how it's being perceived um, over there. As, you know, as someone who you know, in the U.S., we're always looking toward Europe and saying they 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 do better things with food they care a little bit more um and so it's it's been um you know troubling to see that these things could take hold there in a similar way but uh, you know basically like what's the status on on the situation regarding 
you know, efficiency things like Soylent or tech food, like Impossible Burgers and that sort of thing. Um, so, interestingly, one of the kind of prominent, I guess you'd call it a trend, even though I'm loath to do so, in UK restaurants that the majority of people who are covering London restaurant media would consider to be good uh, is this focus on uh, meat and fish and vegetables which are produced using the mindset of regenerative agriculture. Um, So there's a big debate in the UK kind of environment media which has sort of had its entrails spill into restaurants whereby a lot of prominent environmentalists are arguing for extensive rewilding so allowing the landscape to kind of just do its own thing um and the kind of strongest opposition to that in terms of mindset would come from people who are supporting regenerative agriculture who would say that uh allowing cattle and pigs particularly to graze on kind of I guess quasi rewilded landscapes which aren't planted as monocultures uh the theory is that it allows more carbon to be sequestered into the soil and is therefore better for the environment than standard um livestock production um I have my doubts about whether that is a viable long-term solution particularly at scale but what it's led to is a series of prominent london restaurants focusing on using meat and fish um from sources like that particularly um pork and beef so you have this one strand which is supporting small-scale farming and restaurant critics and restaurant writers love to write about that and love to give it praise and rightly so because a lot of the product they produce is extremely good but on the at the same time you have people yeah uh eulogizing about the impossible burger not the impossible burger because it's not legal in the uk yet because he hasn't been uh regulated by food stuff but the beyond burger has and it has been yeah widely praised as a yeah both ethical environmental and tasty solution to meet without even a moment's consideration to asking why the main people taking up are fast food chains um right and yeah it's I mean, there's a prominent Formula One driver in the UK called Lewis Hamilton, who uh, is known for having gone vegan a few years ago, and he's backing a fast food chain called Meat Burger, which has designs on being a rollout, basically. Um, so you have a guy who makes millions of pounds by driving a car around on a track for 70 laps also walking a burger that purports to save the environment and it's like what? <laughs> just, uh, 
the cognitive dissonance of what there is. Staggering. Um, but I think that it's, I've been thinking about this for a while. I think it's not so much that people don't want to have these kind of conversations. It's more what I was talking about at the beginning, that food writing in the UK is so entrenched in basically, if it's not a restaurant review or a recipe, I'm not really sure that it, what it is. The mm -hmm. having outlets with the necessary kind of reach and impact to disseminate alternative ideas in a way that might even have a hope of penetrating the mainstream is just not really viable mm -hmm. in the current media ecosystem. And like I think in the example of things that we know from this pandemic, like um, Vittel and like that's the key example in London is like it's both brilliant that that platform has been set up and is providing like a plurality to UK media but it's also really sobering to think that it needed both the pandemic and an entirely new education to kind of present those ideas right. if that makes sense like it's a shame that uh, editors and committing editors sort of perceive there to be no room for those things at the larger publications in the country but you know right. I mean I think yeah there's an essential parochialism there which I think is slowly kind of shifting but I think it's going to take to mature into something that can do the food culture that is present in the UK like the the treatment it deserves basically right and for you is cooking a political act yeah i think it always is i don't like the uh which was it the buzzfeed piece about guy fieri that said he was um unproblematic because his food is apolitical like yeah <laughs> i think it always is i think whatever you're in two ways like whatever choice you make about the food you buy, um, what you cook with, and all the other things that go into cooking, I think, are all political choices. And I think as well as that, being mindful of the things that control what those choices consist of is also important. Um, because no, no individual person can make the same choices from the same kind of available roster of choices as anybody else and I think that trying to think of cooking as not political is yeah it's not admissible to me personally well thank you so much for coming on Jim thank you for having me All right.